verse 13 through 511. So that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. The text reads like this. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. As we jump back into our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to be vulnerable with you all this evening. I am nervous to preach to you this sermon. Ever since we've started going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, I knew that we were always going to arrive at this passage and I was going to have to go through and explain it. If you're scratching your head as to why I might be nervous to preach a text like this, seemingly harmless piece of scripture Well, let me explain. Tonight we are going through an area of theology called eschatology. Eschatology, stemming from the Greek word eschaton, means last things and is itself a study of the last things 
or more in particular, the end times. You see, throughout all of church history, there have been a, there have been a wide number of varying interpretations to what the end is going to look like. Each perspective, studying, analyzing, and emphasizing various different aspects of the end times as prophesied in Scripture. While the end times are a great thing to study, and we should seek to have a firm grasp on it, many Christians sometimes put an overemphasis on this study and have made it the basis of their entire theology and therefore their entire lives. This can lead to pretty intense debates between believers, which can lead to the breaking of fellowship on what is at best a secondary, if not a tertiary issue. If that doesn't help, and that isn't enough for this, to, add to, to say why I'm nervous to preach this tonight, I was educated in a Bible college that starkly held to one position in this debate. In my first year there, I was given a pretty basic view of what the school believed and then never really taught anything else more about this particular view. This led me to trying to read this view into scripture as I was doing my own study. Only it never felt like it was working and I was connecting this particular view to what I was reading. I would have conversations with some of my friends and my classmates in which we would discuss the different eschatological positions in the hope of seeking more clarity. But finally, in my own study, I started to see that I was trying to read scripture with a preconceived idea of what I was supposed to be finding only to fail in actually finding it. So this evening, I would like to avoid that mistake with all of you as we go through this passage of scripture together. I am sure that here in this church, we can have a variety of beliefs on this topic, especially just here in this building. So instead of trying to address this passage of scripture with a particular view of the end times in mind, we're just going to start with what the Bible says and start with that as our foundation. Start with a clean slate and trying to read the Bible as clearly as we can to the best of our our ability. So when we discuss the coming of the Lord as laid out here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we are going to come to conclusions that can fit into all major views of the end times because this is what scripture says, not because our preconceived notions are guiding us to such a conclusion. So this evening, we are going to be learning about how the day of the Lord is coming and more specifically, how the day of the Lord will be exciting how the day of the Lord will come suddenly, and how the day of the Lord is a call to action. So let's begin in verse 13 of chapter four. The text reads like this. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, the Thessalonian church, as we have already established in previous messages through our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians, they were experiencing some intense persecution because of their newfound faith. While we don't have explicit proof that any of the Thessalonians died as a result of this persecution, It is not outside of our realm of possibilities that someone, if not some people, had died as a result of their faith. This would lead many of the Thessalonians to question where these men and women who had died, where they had gone off to, and if they would ever be reunited with them again, showing genuine concern for their brothers and sisters who had passed. And this is exactly the question that Paul addresses here in this section, which leads me to my first point for this evening. The coming of the Lord is exciting. You see, Paul's goal in addressing this problem is to give hope to the church on what would happen to those who had already passed. You see, in an atheistic view, in a pagan view, death is a very hopeless and depressing end to living. There is no hope available to those who are dying as well as to, their loved one, to the loved ones of the deceased. This often can lead to what feels like immeasurable amounts of grief that can often take weeks, if not months, if not years to get rid of. That's because... The person who does not know God, for that person, death is what they believe to be the final indecisive end of everything. This means that when someone dies tragically, grief is abounding all the more. And this is the problem that Paul wants to make clear to the Thessalonian Christians that they do not have to deal with. You see, he's not telling them to not have grief at all, but to have grief in a godly way. Because those who have died and are in Christ are already with Christ and will rise with Christ at the coming of the Lord. We will not be separated with them forever, but will instead be reunited with them at the end of days. The Lord himself will come down and make himself known over all of the earth. 
It will be a definitive moment when every person will know what is happening. Those who are asleep, as Paul describes it, will rise first and those who are alive will be caught up to be together with the Lord forevermore. This will be a time filled with pure joy as we will then be able to dwell with the Lord forever and ever. There will never be a time where we will be more joyous than in the culmination of our salvation. And at that time, we will be transformed and we will be enjoying the fruit of our salvation as we praise God for his glorious and gracious work with every person ever saved by God's grace. This is the moment that all Christians should be looking forward to because this is what has been promised to us for the salvation of our souls. Christ has redeemed us so that we may be reconciled to God. This is the fulfillment of the chief end of man, which if you're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Every person who is saved by and is in Christ will be with him together at the coming of the Lord where we will enjoy him forever. Our joy will come because we are with God and we will never be separated with him again. This is what, making, what makes the coming of the Lord so exciting. But there are plenty of other things that we are going to be excited about concerning the day of the Lord. But the primary reason that we will be joyful is because we are with God. Now the Thessalonians were asking about those who had died with, cons- with concern for them being together with God too. If we quickly are glancing through this passage and reading it with a selfish heart, we can easily be making this passage just about being reunited with loved ones again. While being reunited with loved ones is something to spark joy, it is not the primary reason that we are going to be joyful at the coming of the Lord. And if if we are not careful, our actions will start to say otherwise. I've been seeing this painting floating around the internet recently. It's called The First Moments in Heaven. This painting is, as you can imagine, this painting is very bright and cheery. It has a lot of people coming together and rejoicing in their being reunited. Families hugging, couples dancing. It looks awesome. We look at a painting like that and we start to get excited about, what, about being reunited with our, with our friends and family in heaven. But what that painting subtly communicates is that that is going to be our main reason why we are happy when we get to heaven. So let me just like in the foreground, you see a lot of reunions before, between families, children hugging their parents in what seems to be a luscious green field where it looks like there isn't a problem in this world. In the background, more couples embracing and celebrating be, being reunited with one another. But 
the picture is conveying this theological belief that being, re- being reunited with lost loved ones is the place where our joy will come from when we get to heaven. And this is far from the truth. We then as Christians need to be mindful of why we are looking forward to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord excites us primarily because we are going to be reunited with God. While it is exciting to be reunited with those who have gone to sleep before us, nothing will compare to the joy that we will feel when we come face to face with the Lord forever. Now picking up back in the beginning of chapter five. It says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Our human mind is innately curious There is no denying that when it comes to something big, especially when it comes to something big as the end of days, that we as humans would want to start speculating on when this major event could possibly happen. Will it be in the next year? Will it be in the next decade? Will it even happen in our lifetimes? We are all at least a little bit curious to figure out when this is. And for the Thessalonians, they seem to be curious about it too. So Paul here answers this curious question by saying that it will come like a thief in the night, leading me to our second point for this evening. The coming of the Lord will happen suddenly. Now this answer does not always give us the satisfaction that we really uh, that our hearts our sinful hearts seem to be longing for i think about this as when i was a child when i would ask my father um what time dinner was my father would look at me and say the same words to me over and over again not now soon my <laughs> as a child i i very much disliked these words i hated them very much because i was always hoping the wait would be over as soon as i asked but now as i look back on that i am thankful for the not now soon mentality you see each time i had asked my dad this question he could have looked at me and he could have given me the exact time for when dinner would be but then i would be only focused on that point in time and nothing else forgetting the chores that i had to do before dinner now i realize that these words whether intentional or not gave me a sense of peace about dinner coming i knew that dinner was coming in the future but i was not distracted on the exact moment that it would come I could focus on the things that I was supposed to do before the meal began. This is similar to how we as Christians are called to act with the coming of the Lord. We know that the end is coming. We see a foretaste of it here in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 and 5 and an even bigger glimpse of it 
in the book of Revelation at the end of our Bible. And with this foretaste comes a promise. When the end of days does come, all who know Christ will be reunited with him and be with him forevermore. This is what is promised here in this section. The, la- the day of the Lord will come, but it will come suddenly. The fact of the matter is that we know it is coming and it will come. Those who do not know the Lord, though, will not be prepared for this end. They believe that they have peace and security in this world, placing their hope in governments, their bank accounts, their material possessions, or even something like their loved ones and family members. They believe that as long as they have a sturdy government to protect them, as long as they have enough money in their savings, as long as they have a roof over their head, or as long as they have another person to love them, that they will be safe. Listen to me when I say that all material possessions and human institutions will fade away at the coming of the Lord. All of these things are not foundations that we can build our lives upon. They will ultimately fail when the end comes. That is why, for the non-Christian, the end will come, like as Paul describes it, labor pains upon a pregnant woman. This is not something that they will be able to escape. But since we do know that the end will come, we as Christians must be prepared for it. The problem that many Christians fall into is preparing for it in the wrong ways. There's a pretty large section of Christianity that is obsessively focused on attempting to figure out the exact day that the world will end. In fact, there exists a whole genre of literature, of books, attempting to predict the end of the world. One commentary that I was reading during my preparation for this sermon, was this commentary was written in the year 1997 and had listed books about how a terrible earthquake is going to break the oceanic earth crust just under the Pacific Ocean by the year 1996, or about 50, 50 events pointing to the return of Christ by A.D. 2000. But I will tell you that these things did not cease to exist as we entered the 21st century. At uni, I was working as a custodian, cleaning up campus and taking out trash. And on one of my last days of work, after everybody had left campus and moved out of the dorms, I was taking out the trash to the compactor. And on top of the compactor, I found a five to 600 page book, a commentary on Revelation uh, talking about It had a point in the book about how Revelation had predicted that the 2022 United States presidential election would have fraud. It was was absolutely ridiculous. So, brothers and sisters, what I'm my point that I'm getting at here, and the thing that I would like to encourage you this evening, is to not be distracted with this type of thinking. There, uh, 
if you have become by, if you've become distracted by this type of thinking, throw it away. Replace it with something else. Replace it with reading scripture. The only one who knows the date and the time of the end is the Father because Christ himself said in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So if you have succumbed to this temptation, please turn away from this type of speculation and instead Focus on serving God. As one commentator put it, the proper preparation for the coming of the day of the Lord is service rather than speculation. Let me say that again. The proper preparation for the coming of the day of the Lord is service rather than speculation. We should not be fully devoted to figuring out when the Lord will return, but rather instead focusing on how we can use that time that he has given us for his glory. We should adopt the mindset of the reformer Martin Luther, who when asked about, how, or about what he would do if the Lord returned tomorrow, that he would plant a tree. Go about your business as usual, but be aware that the time that we have been given is limited. Finally, let's turn to the last portion of our passage for this evening. Picking up in chapter five, verse five. It says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the light or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So as we know that the coming of the Lord is for sure going to happen, and we can place our hope in this fact, the Thessalonians and us by extension are called to action. The mere fact that we know the end is coming is a reminder that we are not to be as the world and believe that there is peace and security and earthly things. We are not called to just lounge around lazily until we reach the end, but are instead called to do something. This leads me to my third and final point for this evening. The coming of the Lord is a call to action for the believer. In knowing that the coming of the Lord is inevitable, Paul gives two commands for how the Christian is supposed to prepare for the end of days. And that is to keep awake and be sober, or essentially to be alert and to be self-controlled. 
Both of these attributes flow into each other and inform the other. In order for us to be alert, we must be controlling ourselves and realizing that the, what the future holds and how we should be working as we head into this future. The inverse is also true. In order for us to be self-controlled, we must be alert to our own actions and surroundings, helping us to act properly in this time that God has given to us. So how do we be alert and self-controlled and be ready for when the thief in the night comes? Paul points out three things in verse eight. Faith, love, and hope in Christ. These three virtues are the hallmark of how Christians should be acting knowing that the day of the Lord is coming. We we must have complete faith in the Lord that he will accomplish all that he has promised to us. We must, uh, he has destined us not for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him, just as it says here in verse 9. We then can act in accordance with love, sharing with the people around us the great news of salvation through Christ. Love also enables us to encourage one another here in this church to continue persevering on and using this scripture here as the encouragement. And finally, we have hope in Jesus and we anticipate his coming back. We are not developing tunnel vision to the point where we are losing sight of what is around us, but we are waiting in joyful anticipation for his second coming. So to close out this sermon for this evening, I would just like to read from you a section of the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you don't know what Pilgrim's Progress is, it is a story, an allegory about the Christian life from, the, from living in sin to conversion to reuniting with God in heaven. In this section, titled The Happiness of heaven described, our main character has just crossed through the river of death and is about to enter the celestial city which represents heaven. It says, Pilgrim, what must we, the pilgrim is saying this, he says, what must we do in this holy place? And then they answered him, you must there receive the comfort for all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and suffering for the king by the way. In that place, you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and visions of the Holy One, for there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving whom you desired to serve in the world through with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with the hearing of the pleasant voice of the mighty one. 
There you shall enjoy your friends again that have gone thither before you. And there you shall with joy receive even everyone that follows into this holy place after you. There also you shall be clothed with glory and majesty and put into an equipage fit, fit to ride out with the king of glory when he shall come with the sound of the tr- sound of trumpet in the clouds as upon the wings of the wind you shall come with him and th- when when he shall sit upon the throne of judgment you shall sit by him yea and you and when he shall pass sentence upon the workers of iniquity let them be angels or men you shall also have a voice in that judgment because they were his and your enemies and while he shall return again to the city, you shall to go to with the sound of trumpet and ever be with him. Church, let us look forward to the coming of the Lord. But let us not remain idle in the meantime, but aim to spread the gospel to everyone around us so that they, that way they may share in the joy given to us by the Lord when we are reunited and dwell with him forever. And until that time comes, when we are reunited with the Lord, let us be excited and joyfully look forward to the promised second coming. Amen. Please pray with me.